All right, well, let me just say this. Uh, it's good to see everybody. Like, I feel like every time I stand up here, just reminded, I love this church family deeply, deeply, deeply. <laughs> and, uh, and so, anyways, it's just such a joy to be a shepherd here. Um, the Mel's, Scott and Laura, I don't know where they are. Anyways, they're right over here. I can't see. This, this is like the one spot I can't see right in here. Anyways, uh, Scott and Laura left. How, how long ago was it? 18 years ago, you were like, what, 12? <laughs> when they went and planted a church down in uh, the Santa Monica area, and they're still down there just by the grace of God. Lisa and I actually went down there on our sabbatical just to hang out with, with their local church. And so anyways, it's, it's great having them here today. And you can, I'll tell you what, man, he's, just, he's been a friend, not only in the Lord, but a friend in ministry for a long, long time. And I truly do love and appreciate him. So... If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew uh, 16. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. Uh, as you're going to tell around Cornerstone, we are very passionate about God's Word. We want people to have a Bible and be in their Bible. Uh, we believe the Bible is truly one that was written uh, by men, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, therefore it is divine. It is, it is unique in that way. It is inerrant. It's inspired. And so... We believe that God's word, the spirit uses it to transform lives. And so we'd love to be able to give you one if you don't, if you don't have one. But uh, where we're at is in the middle of kind of Matthew almost, in Matthew 16. As you know, last week, one of the things that I talked about was, is this is a tipping point of sorts. Jesus, he's at the height of his popularity. We know this because there are so many people coming from so many different places to come see this one, this Jesus and what he was doing and what he was about to hear his teaching, to see the signs and wonders, the miracles, to have people that they love healed. But we also know in that tipping point, this is where he starts to get rejected. We see him rejected by the kind of the main religious leaders. So whether we're talking the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all these major religious leaders, they begin to be ones that, uh, that deny him and walk away from him. Even some of his disciples, when he won't give them some bread in John 6, they walk away from him. And I love it in John 6. It's one of the, seriously my favorite passages when Jesus looks at his guys and he says, you're going to leave too. They go, where are we going to go? <laughs> you got the words of life. They saw the beauty of Jesus. They saw his otherness, his distinctness. They didn't fully get who he was at this particular point, but they knew this, this man that was in front of them was unique. Now in this, we talked about last week specifically this idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus? This is a key theme throughout the book of Matthew. Follow me, follow him, follow, follow. Uh, it's, it's, it's a key word so much to the point, if you remember right, the distinction between the false religious leaders and those that were with Jesus were the fact that they followed him. Now, one of the passages that we also looked at that several came up and just said, man, this is probably one of the scariest passages that I've ever seen in the text is in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, where there's these people that practice a religiosity. They don't know Jesus. They don't walk with Jesus. And that fear that when they stand before him one day, he says, I never knew you. Just the horror of that. These weren't Pharisees. These weren't Sadducees. These were actually people that were probably practicing a form of religiosity. That's kind of his idea that he was granting to them. But he's like, I don't know you. 
Now, so many people say, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, the beauty is, it's what I told you before. We're supposed to follow him. Look at this in John 10, 27. You have this, where my sheep are my voice, and I what? I, I know them. Now, what's the key of this, though? They follow me. I remember a good friend of mine once, his, his, his little kid came up and said, Daddy, Daddy, I, I want to, I want to, I just asked Jesus into my heart. And I remember just in that moment, him looking at this little child and said, that's great. Now follow him. It's not about a super secret prayer that we say. It's about ones that follow him by faith. They see him. So in that, that's what we're going to look at today because this is where the text is going to go. Jesus is going to come to them. You're going to see this in verse 24 of chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And what's the words? Follow me. That's going to be where we're going to get after today. So we're going to ask this question, how do we follow Jesus? Remember I told you, you had to come back. So those of you who came back this week, you now get the answer of, okay, well, how do we actually do this? Well, the first one that I want you to get in your mind is this. And by the way, um, what's it called where you make them all the same letter? Alliteration. I alliterated for all of you today. I just want you to know that. It's, it's something special, my gift to you from me. I've alliterated them all of you, remember? But how do we follow Jesus? And the first one you're going to see here that we're going to talk about is this idea we follow with a confession. Now, what we mean by a confession is not like, oh, you know, I was guilty, I'm confessing to the police, or even confession from the standpoint that we see like in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. There's definitely confession there. But when we talk about this, it's an essential statement of belief, what we believe about something. Specifically, we're going to see this, and I, I think this is the most important question that we can ask and answer people or for ourselves, the essential belief about who is Jesus this is crucial. And I love Jesus in this moment. He, he comes along, right? They're moving from Caesarea Philippi. They're probably at the upper end. There's as far north as they could go. Probably at the upper end of what was the ancient Israeli kingdom, the farthest it comes to stand almost. And they're turning and they're returning back to Jerusalem. We're going to see this. They're, they're walking back into it. And in this time, as he's always teaching them through things, he asks this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who am I to people? Now, he uses the name Son of Man. We know that it comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. We've talked about this. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is the king establishing his kingdom they were in the far north. They were, they were coming down. They were returning. We're going to see this to the capital city, that there's something unique happening here. And Jesus wants to make sure that they know what he's doing right now. And so he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the first two responses I love, right? They, they all get together and they say, look, this is who people say that you are. Some of you say, look at this, John the Baptist, others Elijah. Those make complete sense to me. Look down at the third one. But others, Jeremiah or even one of the prophets. And Jeremiah is just this reality of the weeping prophet, the prophet of doom. In other words, they're saying, most people just think you're another prophet. A long line of the prophets. And Jesus always teaching. He looks back at them and he says, though, who do you say that I am? 
I don't care who you are in this room, whether you're somebody that doesn't know Jesus and you're trying to learn what is this whole thing that this church is talking about or somebody that has walked with Jesus for years, the most important question that we can ask and continue to ask, who's Jesus? Who is he? Not who do we think that he is, but what is, who is it that he said? Who does God's word say that he is? This is the most important question that we can ask and that we can answer. And I love this. When he says that to him, Peter steps forward. Now, what do we know about Peter? Oh, man, Peter's always the guy that just says things, does things. In some ways, he's impulsive. I relate to this guy so much. And he says this statement, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Now, all throughout Matthew, we've been showing this idea of Jesus being the Christ. All of chapters 1 through 4 are about Jesus being the Christ. And the argument then that then plays out for the rest of this time, this anointed one from God, this Messiah, has just been a drumbeat all throughout the book of Matthew. And so you can't kind of get away from this one. But what exactly is Peter saying here when he says he is also the son of the living God? See, that's one of the questions we need to ask this morning. Now, on one level, I don't even think Peter fully understood what he was saying because we find out later, Jesus says to him, look, Peter, you didn't come up with that. My father led you along to say that. We'll get there in just a second. But in leading him along, he was stating a truth about this one. Back in Matthew 8, we know the demons called him the son of God. In Matthew 14, 33, when Christian was preaching, right, they, they walk through this storm. Jesus calms it, and they say, truly, you are the son of God. This, this title, son of God, is a unique one. There's something distinct about you. They, may, they probably didn't understand him yet as the second person of the Trinity, which we're going to come to. And they understood after the resurrection I think they just saw him as this promised one who would restore the kingdom, this promised one who would restore God's good reign to earth, like you see in like 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 2. He was a king who stood in this, this special relationship to God, a representative of God, to act on behalf of God for his people. They saw that. I think they really did see it. The thing, though, that gets added to this is this idea of living God. Why? Well, that idea comes to us in Jeremiah 10. And if you've got your Bibles there, you can, you can go there with me if you want. Or I can just read it to you. Just listen closely. It starts in verse 3 if you've got your Bible. Jeremiah 10. Look at verse 3. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by his hands and a craftsman. Speaking of idols. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. By the way, that's one of my favorite statements out of this. Just like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They have to be carried, right? For they cannot walk. They, they do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Look at verse 8. They are both stupid and foolish. This is the one time, kids, if you're in here, you can say the word stupid. My children right now will be going, oh, he said stupid. To idols, yes. They can't speak is the idea. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Euphaz. They're the work of craftsmen. And of the hands of the goldsmith, their clothing is violet and purple. They're all the works of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. Here it is. He is the what? 
living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes. The nations cannot endure his indignation. It's almost like Peter adds it on going, you are distinct. You're unlike any other that's come before that's claimed to be a son of God. You are a son of the living, true God. Now, on some levels, we might go, well, why didn't he get it all? Well, have you ever been noticed that any of us, when we come to go to Jesus, we kind of don't get it all? Jesus is moving him along here. He's, trust me, Peter is going to get it. But at this particular moment, he is casting out this confession in what he understood at the time. And he's saying, no doubt in my mind, you are distinct. You are other. You truly do come from God. Now they get it ironed out, obviously, later on in Acts 9. Paul, when he's in Damascus, he starts preaching that he is the Son of God, truly this one that is the second person of the Trinity, truly man, truly God. There's no doubt about it. But also arguing that Jesus was the Christ. And from a confession standpoint, this idea is crucial. Does everybody see that little symbol? Everybody see it? Looks like a wheel, a wagon wheel. This actually began to mark homes in the early second century as those people that were authentic, true followers of Jesus. Now, that little wheel holds so much significance. When you put that little wheel up like this, let me, let me show you what that wheel meant. Here's the first thing. See that iota? It stands for Jesus, Jesus. That's the idea there. Jesus, the Chi Christos, Christ. The Theta, Theos. God, the Upsilon, Huyas, Son, the Sigma, Soter, Savior. Inside of that was the statement that held a confession, which was the most important thing about the church that Peter, even in his infancy, began to understand about who Jesus is. Jesus is Christ. He is the Son of God. He is Savior. He is other. And that's what a confession is. It's the core of what we believe. And this statement, look what those words spell out there. I'll say them for you in Greek. Ichthus, which means Fish. If you've ever seen the fish on the back of a car, not the Darwin ones, the other ones, that became what the church was. When you put that symbol out there, that was our confession. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Savior. And I would say that is the most important question to ask, who do you think that Jesus is? If you're someone here that doesn't know Jesus, we would love to explain to you. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't a man who became a God. He was truly God, truly man who came. He lived a perfect life. He died and rose again because no other human being alone could do it. He must be God. And he is the reason all of us are sitting in this room expecting his return. Jesus Christ is the exalted Lord. That's the way it went out. Peter may not have got it fully, but he was definitely moving in the right direction. So it's not only when we say we follow Christ, we have a confession. And again, this is so important to embrace the truth of who Jesus is. But the other part of it is, is that we follow in a community. Now, now where do we get that? Let me, let me kind of show you this. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said, blessed are you, and I love this, Simon Bar-Jonah. The, the idea is Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's almost like, hey, Peter, you didn't get that on your own. 
you didn't arrive at this amazing truth, which, by the way, that is the truth of how even Scripture was written. They didn't arrive at it on their own. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We find that out in, in 2 Peter, 1 Peter. But he goes on and it says to them, for flesh and blood is not revealed, this my Father's in heaven. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now, there's some distinction in here. Anytime God would change somebody's name, he always had a unique call for them. You think back to like Abram and Sarai. They were changed to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob was changed to Israel. And we know way back in John 1 that Peter, or Peter had his name changed from, from Cephas, but he, he got the name Peter or Petros, which means rock. Meaning there's something significant that I'm calling you to, Peter. Now, the thing that he's calling them to, which is so distinct, is this idea on this rock, I will build my church. Now, for those of you that grew up maybe in Roman Catholic churches, you might have heard that the first rock was Peter, and then he became the first pope, who then handed off to the next pope, and the pope after that, and the pope after that. I don't see that in this text at all. We love our Catholic, Roman Catholic friends, but that is not in this text. Now, the thing that we have generally done within our conservative Christian circles to go, well, there's a difference. There's like Petros, Little Rock, and Petra, Big Rock. That's actually not found anywhere, so don't, that's not that one. Well, maybe it's this, this rock that he's talking about is the confession. Well, that grammatically kind of doesn't fit. Well, then are the Roman Catholics right? No. See, in this, he's talking about a rock that he's already kind of referenced to way back in chapter 7, this rock that the wise man built his house on, right? We know this song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. <laughs> now, y'all got to get to church. Jeez. But the idea of the rock is something that was founded, founded on the rock. You'll see that like in Ephesians where Paul is, is walking through this idea of, of, of what things were, how the church was founded. Verse uh, 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 19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, these Gentiles, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Look at this. Built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. Peter, in essence, what he's saying is, is you're kind of a leader amongst leaders. This foundation that I'm beginning to build, Paul now develops out further. But we want to make sure, look at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter's not the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. This one whom we based our confession, he's the one that's building this holy temple that is the church. In Revelation 21, we see the 12 foundations of the 12 apostles. There's this way in which the foundation of the church happens in that way. In verse 19 in Matthew 16, we see this, that Peter's going to be given these keys to heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whether you be loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's this re it's reference back to Isaiah 22 in which this, this, this person, a part of David's kingdom, was going to be given the stewarding of authority. There's just this way Jesus is saying is on you as the kind of the leader amongst leaders and the rest of them, I'm going to build my church so in other words, all those cartoons you see of Peter sitting at the pearly gates waiting for you to come in with a key to unlock, not true. Just in case you're wondering, I'll break that one to you. But Peter played a unique role. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the church and Peter starts to preach a message from Joel. And Jews, it says, were cut to the heart and 3,000 people were added to that number that day. 
Acts 8, we find out that Peter was asked to come up when the Samaritans had embraced Jesus. They were waiting to receive the Holy Spirit. And when Peter shows up, lays their hands on him, they received the Holy Spirit. Peter was a part of Acts 2, Acts 8. And then in Acts 10, when the Gentiles get brought in after that kind of story about a sheet that comes down from heaven, Peter was at the forefront of Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10. But once the foundation was laid, Acts 15, we see Peter falling into the background. To the forefront, in that case, comes James, and then Paul becomes the forefront in some way. The foundation was laid. That's what he's talking about there. But more important to this text, oops, I went through so much there. More important to this text is he said, I will build my what? Church. I love this. I will build the assembly. All of you sitting here today are a church. The uniqueness of it is we claim Christ as the true King and Lord. The Holy Spirit, it says, he, he dwells in and amongst his people. The rest of the New Testament, in the most part, is about local churches like ours. But we also know that this church that Jesus was proclaiming in Matthew 28 was going to be one that would go to all the nations. There are churches right now that span the entire globe. Not only that, they span the entire globe, but for 2,000 years, God has been building his church. And what you're a part of is something unique and something special that was founded on these apostles. But don't miss this. The church is something unique. See, the gates in, in your text, it might say hell. The word is actually Hades. It's this idea of, of, of the dead. Hades representing death from the standpoint that the final enemy that Jesus will conquer is death. And let me just tell you something. He's saying that nothing will stop my church. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to stop the church, whether through philosophy, killing Christians, trying to put different walls and different things around them. You can't stop Jesus' church because it's founded our confession upon Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. You can't stop him. All throughout time, the church isn't a bunch of dainty little flowers. We're dandelions that crawl into the cracks of everything that nobody can get rid of. <laughs> and I know I say this a lot, but every year when we come to election time, I'm so tired of us as Christians going, Oh no, what are we going to do if we get the wrong next president? Oh, is Jesus even still on his throne? Oh, you better believe he is. There is no leader that comes into power apart from our Savior allowing it to happen. That leader's, his life literally hangs in Jesus' hands. And it doesn't matter what rules and restrictions, if they take away our First Amendment or our Second Amendment, even 2A, which we don't want to lose our guns, do we? My goodness, nothing good would come from that. I love the Bill of Rights, but we don't need it. Rome tried to stop us, didn't work. Different kingdoms have rose up and tried to stop the church, didn't work. Why? Because King Jesus is going to build his church until he returns again. And when he returns, all those leaders that have the audacity to stand against him, though the church might have been punished, though the church might have gone through heartache and difficulty, though the church, different ones may have died advancing it, 
our King, Jesus Christ, Son, God, Savior, cannot be stopped. Nothing can stop him. Never forget that. We stand in that hope. Man, right now I feel like a coach. But you know what I mean? I just, I want all of you in here to believe this so deep within your core that the next time the election season comes around, you're like, look, I'm going to vote faithfully in a way that honors Jesus. But no matter who rises to power, Jesus is Lord. We got to keep that in our minds, all right? And the community that we're a part of cannot be stopped. So we have a confession. Everybody with me? We have a community that cannot be stopped because of the person of Jesus. But look at this third one. We have a co-mission. Now, on one level, you can tell that Jesus prompts this. We're gonna, by the way, we're going to skip verse 20. I'll come back to that. We're going to look at verse 21. But Jesus kind of almost has to explain his messianic mission. Now, on one level, he's going to say, I must go to Jerusalem. He's been hinting on that back in chapter 9, verse 15. He also talked about it kind of in uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 40. But that word must, it means it is necessary. What he was speaking implicitly, he's now speaking explicitly. I am going back to Jerusalem. I'm going back to the capital city. I'm going back there. Now, for most of those guys sitting there, like, oh, yeah. We're going back to the city. Jesus Christ is going to come in. He's going to drive out those nasty Herodians, all those temple priests that are frauds and facades, all the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He is going to come in and he is going to establish his kingdom. And Jesus has to preempt it and say, time out. Let me explain to you, conquer. He says in there that he must go to Jerusalem. Look at this. And suffer many things from the elder, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, I know we look at it and go, yeah, no, duh. These guys were sitting there going, whoa, slow your roll, Jesus. No, this is where we go back, and you win, and we get established on thrones and kingdoms. It's going to be so awesome. Let's go. And Jesus is like, no, you forgot. I have to do some things first. See, Jesus Christ is coming back to establish his kingdom. He is going to reign and rule. He will rule over all things, and his kingdom will have no end. There is no doubt about it. You cannot read the scriptures and get to Revelation and go, I wonder if Jesus wins. <laughs> oh, no. But if you remember right, before he establishes that future forever kingdom, we have a problem. The heart. It's wicked. It's evil. It must be changed. He needed to come and to die because humanity was separated from God in all kinds of different ways. We were separated because humanity has been in rebellion all the way back since Adam and Eve, just rebelling against God. God gave his law to his people Israel, and many by faith pursued it. He did wonderful works within their heart through the Holy Spirit. 
But he was speaking about something new that he's going to talk about in John 14, 15, and 16, that when he dies, he was going to leave the Holy Spirit, but we must be cleansed. We must be these people that are, are truly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, these temples that are made right for the dwelling of the Savior. I got to come and die first. I got to be your Pascal lamb. I need to make you right with God. Well, these guys didn't fully get this. Every time Jesus references, he's going to keep trying to tell them, guys, I'm going back. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again three days later. Don't miss this, but I got to go back because we have to solve this problem that I spoke about a few weeks ago, the heart. To establish a kingdom forever and ever without transforming people sounds awful. Let's be made different, other, distinct, set apart. I have to go back and do that, but don't miss this. When he says, I'm going to rise again three days later, the gates of death are going to get kicked down. So you've got to kick down that gate too. I'm going to kick that gate down now. All who ever place their faith in me on Christ and Christ alone, based upon his word alone, those who do that, I will assure you, the death will no longer be the great obstacle that it's been, the enemy that it's been. Paul talks about as a defeated enemy. The stinger gets removed. Death, oh, where is your victory? Death's where your sting. Death is defeated. Jesus says, I got to go back and I got to do that first. See, that's the point in Isaiah 53. See, they were looking for the great conquering Savior, but in Isaiah 53, this one grew up before him like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as for the one whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, though he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of just a few. No, all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By his oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for this, his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and his rich man, or rich man in his death. Although he has done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous, uh, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I shall divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus said, I got to come do that first. I got to fulfill that. Sin has to be dealt with. Rebellion has to be dealt with. Humanity must be righted so the Holy Spirit can dwell in them. The heart must be changed. 
But please don't miss this. On the third day when he was raised, God was vindicated. I love in that song, when he was raised, it seems like a, a reference to it back in 1 Peter 4. God announced to the entire angelic realm, the demonic realm, to those that were dead, my king, Jesus Christ, he reigns over all. And he ushers him through that realm, proclaiming the victory of Jesus. It may not look like it now, but I promise you, Jesus reigns right now. And he is bringing his reign to bear and he will one day, we will see it clearly with our eyes. He wanted to know, that's why we must follow him. Now, on one end, he gave his mission, but now look at the commission, the mission alongside of him, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, look at this word, deny himself. The, the idea is to disassociate oneself from, to, to put oneself at what we might call risk and take up his cross, where there's no doubt about that in like 1038. This idea is loss of life. And here's our word, follow me. Now again, put yourself with the disciples. They're like going, What? Jesus, on one end, you talked about this idea of you're going back and you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be killed. You're going to be raised again on the third day. And now you want us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. And the idea is here is, yes, that's what I want you to do. Well, why? Well, within this text, he's going to give us three four statements. Whenever you see that word four, oftentimes it's explaining something. Whoever would save his life will actually lose it. But look at this. Whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Verse 27, kind of beckoning back into to, to, to Daniel 7. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he's done. What is he saying here? It's worth it. You won't regret it. He's already told the parable of the pearl. He's told the parable of the treasure. When a person finally gets it and sees it, when someone finally sees this confession of who Jesus Christ really is, when we get it, we'll do anything for it. But I think this is what's crucial about what he's explaining about this commission. It won't be easy. See, I feel like sometimes we, we, when we think about this mission, and this is why I think we want everything to be perfect inside the United States so we can have the perfect little scenario to do our perfect little job, that's not how God works. Man, oh, in the same way Jesus Christ going on the cross was difficult, this gospel has been advanced not through ease and comfort, but through heartache and difficulty. Why? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's to confound the wise of this world. How can a group of people that believe in a Savior that died on the far end of the Roman Empire on a trash heap why have they placed so much stock in who this one is? Because they saw him for who he truly is, as Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. They got the glimpse of him. This is what I want for our church. This is why we preach Jesus. Once you see Jesus, nothing else matters. You are willing to do whatever it takes to advance that mission. You're willing to even lay down your life, but it's not just a one-time decision. It's a decision that must be made and made and made. 
And even the next passage, Jesus talks about this idea. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will taste, not taste death until they see, the, look at that, the Son of Man, Daniel 7 again, coming in his kingdom. The idea in this is what back in Daniel 7 is my followers will see the kingdom starting to happen to all kinds of languages. Matthew 28, what happens? Well, we see this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and they start advancing to the message all over the world to all the nations, all the ethne. But even next week, and I can't wait for this, and when we talk about it in, in, in Matthew 17, there's gonna be this way in which a few of them are gonna see Jesus pull back his glory and they're gonna be able to see, is it worth it? It's worth it. Now, here's what I want us all to get in here. We do need to know the confession. We need to know what we believe. We need to know we follow in a community, this one that cannot be stopped even by death. We need to know there's a commission and it's going to be difficult. But the other thing we need to know is the only way that it's going to happen is in conflict. Now, where do I get that? Look down at verse 20. Remember, I promised you we would come back to it. It says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, why? Well, the answer is found in verse 22. Right after Jesus tells him this, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. If Peter didn't get it, the rest of the world aren't going to get it. See, here's the thing you need to know. We all think somehow we can like talk people into the kingdom or we have these great messages to try to convince people into the kingdom and we should be faithful in the presentation of Jesus. But do you understand that this message that we're preaching, people don't get unless God does a work in them. This is the confidence that I have when I present the gospel to people. I seek to present it truthfully and honestly in the way that they can understand it. We want them to understand it but Paul even said this when he was talking about him and Apollos. You know, one, one plants, one waters, one preaches the gospel, one waters on top of it. But who causes growth? God. We just present the gospel. And in this presentation of the gospel, we will face conflict, difficulty. But the last thing I want to get you, though, is it's worth it. See, everything about our discipleship pathway that we've put together is to teach you how to walk with Jesus. We want you to know the confession. We want you to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. We want you to know that this is part of being done in a community. You're not supposed to do this alone, a community that stretches all over the world, which is why we believe in global global ministry, and a community that has stretched for 2,000 years, which is why we're amazed that we're a part of this incredible plan. We want you to understand that this message is a co-mission with Jesus, but it is done out of great difficulty. We want to raise kids that understand this. And when I pray over my children, first of all, I do want them to come to know Jesus, but I want them to, I want them to see him not just as this one who's going to keep them from not going to hell. I want them to see him as the pearl of great price and the treasure of the field. I want them to see the beauty of Jesus. I want to see his beauty come out in my life and my wife's life. Why? Because I want them to not embrace a message that is somehow just health and wealth and somehow just an easy believism and just kind of floating through things. I want my kids to see Jesus so beautiful that they'll do anything in the world to advance the most incredible message ever, the gospel of Jesus. 
I want them to get it so that nothing will see, they'll see that nothing can stop them. And I think we all in this room today, we need to re-embrace that. That's my heart for this church. I want us to see Jesus in the glory of who he is because the Holy Spirit revealed it through his words and we see the greatness of him. And at all costs, we will advance the greatest message ever. That we won't get caught up in silly stuff. That we won't get caught up in what kind of chairs we sit in or is it too cold or too hot in this room. That we won't get caught up in, you know, is this my for this music or that music. That we won't get caught up in all these little silly things because once you've seen Jesus, it's not as if those things can't be addressed. Once you've seen him, those things seem so piddly in light of his glory and grace. But also, man, I went over the top of our town and I was looking in to see me this week. <sighs> this is where we live. Simi Valley, home of the Ronald Reagan Library. <laughs> A lot of you asked Ronald Reagan into your heart, haven't you? <laughs> Community seeking safety and comfort and security. Community trying to get out of the ills of that terrible city, Los Angeles. But an area that needs the gospel. And we're here. Along with all the other churches that claim Jesus, that believe in God's word. I don't want to be a church where we just sit around on Sunday and go, oh, you know, Todd could have done better. My gosh, he wasn't as funny as he normally is. <laughs> wasn't having as much excitement. I don't know, Christian, he's way smarter than Todd. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> we gotta see Jesus at all costs. Even in this passage, he has to tell Peter, Peter, you're getting in the way of it. You're acting like Satan did. We need to help each other to move the encumbrances away from seeing the greatness and the grandness of Jesus. We need to collectively devote ourselves to helping one another to see that greatness of Jesus because I truly believe when a church sees the grandness and the greatness of Jesus, I don't have to spur you on, please, go do something, please. I won't be able to hold you back because you've seen the Lord of glory. So I'm going to bring the band up right now, and we're going to sing a song. And I don't want you just to sing it, just to sing it. We follow with a confession. Jesus is Lord. We're in a community that hell, death, cannot stop it. We're a part of a commission that Jesus demonstrated that he is going to be victorious, but it is going to be difficult. There will be conflict. But let me tell you this. King Jesus wins. You got me? I don't see enough heads nodding.
King Jesus wins. You get that, right? Now, that was great to clap for. Let's beg God to make that real more and more in our life. I want to see the King of glory reign and rule over this church, this unstoppable group of people that are part of an unstoppable mass of people. And all God's people said,